You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. These days, the term e-car is shorthand for electric car, but in 1955, it was the working name for a car that was going to shake up the mid-range luxury car market. Fancier than most Fords, cheaper than a Mercury. It had a unique vertical grille, teletouch drive to shift gears with the push of a button, a speedometer that turned red when you went too fast, a remote-operated electric opening trunk, and other impressive features like seat belts. It was advertised as your car, based on polling the buying public on what they wanted. It was available in submodels ranging from a two-door convertible to a station wagon. Named for the son of the company's founder and father of the current head of the company, this car left an indelible mark on the automotive industry for all the wrong reasons. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Little peek behind the curtain here. My last name isn't really Labouche. Shocking, I know, that the name Moxie Labouche might be made up. My real family name is Tucker, like the first entrant of our list today. You might have heard of the 1988 movie Tucker, A Man and His Dream, starring Jeff Bridges. Heard about it was exactly all I did. You'd think I would have at least inquired as to if we were related and there was maybe some money, but no. So we're learning together today, you and I. The Tucker in question was Preston Tucker, a gifted businessman and dedicated gearhead, born in 1903 in Michigan. By the age of 16, he was already making money buying and flipping cars, and had left school to work at Cadillac as a clerk. Tucker would later join the Lincoln Park Police Department because he wanted to drive the cars, but was banned from driving them after he used a blowtorch to cut a hole in the dashboard of one to let heat from the engine warm the cabin. An unconventional approach, but bear in mind the average winter low temperature in Michigan is 17 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 8 degrees Celsius. You do what you gotta do. During World War II, the U.S. government shut down the auto industry so the factories could make tanks, planes, and other gears of war. After a few years with no new cars, there were a lot of past-it cars on the road and no new cars to replace them. Tucker realized people were going to want a new car once this whole kerfuffle was behind us. He also knew how the big car companies would fill that need. They would just take the designs and parts that were interrupted in 1942, fire up the assembly lines, and call the cars that rolled off 1948s, even though they were really just leftover 42s. It's not like people would have a choice, right? What are you going to do? buy a car from some small upstart visionary company? Tucker, on the other hand, wanted to start afresh, and in many ways that was to his advantage. He could tinker with newfangled technologies like fuel injection and disc brakes. If only he had his own car company. So he started one. Tucker wasn't just a creative engineer. 
He was also a very charismatic salesman, the kind of guy who could sell the Pope a double bed, could sell a ketchup popsicle to a woman wearing white gloves, he could sell a glass of water to a drowning man, and my personal favorite when I started Googling for more of these expressions, he could sell a literal meaning to a high school English teacher. I feel that one. He also knew how to massage the media, a critical skill in those bygone times before instant electronic virality. Tucker met with a car designer to draw up quite a stylish design, what would become the Tucker Torpedo. The drawings of the rear-engine car with slick lines that made it look like it was in a hero wind even when it was sitting still, and a third headlight that swiveled to light the way around corners. Other cars of the era looked downright dumpy in comparison. The story and the drawing was picked up by papers across the nation, and the public started to get excited. Style was a concern, of course, the automotive equivalent to we eat with our eyes first. But Tucker was also looking at practical things. The rear engine design left more usable space in the front of the car. And safety, with things like a padded dash and seatbelts standard. Tucker enlisted a few talented fabricators to help him make the prototype, nicknamed the Tin Goose, a play on Howard Hughes's experimental wooden plane, the Spruce Goose. Now Tucker needed a plant in which to manufacture. He found a factory in Chicago that had been used to make bomber engines during the war, and he was able to massage some connections until the War Assets Administration, which still controlled the building, would let him lease the factory, provided he could come up with the money. To raise the money for the lease, Tucker initially decided to get a bank loan, but for $15 million, the amount he needed, the banks wanted control of the Tucker Corporation. Oh, screw that. Tucker decided instead to sell car dealerships of a company that only barely existed, which still didn't have a fully functional prototype. This, understandably, got the attention of the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC started investigating, but Tucker argued that he'd need permission from the SEC to sell stocks or securities, but he didn't need their permission to sell franchises. The SEC, gently put, disagreed and required the Tucker Corporation to amend all dealer contracts to state that there was a significant risk of bankruptcy. That quelled some investor enthusiasm, and Tucker was only able to raise six of the $15 million he needed. Still, that's the equivalent of raising $67 million without a product to show for it. And we just keep doing this, don't we? We as a society get swayed by lofty promises and initial prototype designs, and we go full SHUT UP AND TAKE MY MONEY! That's how you get things like Theranos, that scam blood testing company. Now, Tucker wasn't lying about his product, though. Nor did he speak in a ridiculously artificial baritone, as far as I know. One of the investors, by the way, was Carmine Coppola, whose son, Francis, would direct the Tucker movie. Papa Coppola also did the scores for his son's most famous movies. After signing the lease, Tucker faced a second major hurdle when the National Housing Agency ordered the WAA to terminate Tucker's lease so the factory could be used to build prefabricated housing, another product that would see skyrocketing post-war demand. Tucker spent four months fighting this breach of contract in court, but he eventually prevailed. But still there was that $9 million shortfall to make up, so he decided to sell stock. 
Tucker proposed to the SEC an initial public stock offering of $20 million, which the SEC agreed to, provided a working prototype be built. While Tucker shook hands and made deals, his people took the tin goose on the road. Everywhere they went, people flocked to it. In New York City, they charged admission to see it and actually outsold some Broadway shows. Tucker and the Torpedo were in the news constantly in articles that painted him as an underdog taking on the big three automakers. The big three, naturally, saw all this fervor and were none too pleased. It's been reported that they began pressuring lawmakers and government officials, interfered with Tucker's ability to buy steel, and even fielded spies in his plant. The Tucker Corporation was busy converting the plant for its first production run, but they'd only raised 15 of the $20 million for their IPO, coming up short again. They'd hired 1,600 employees, but had no revenue for wages, parts, or materials. So Tucker decided to set up a pre-order plan that let customers pre-purchase the features they'd want on their car, like exterior and interior color, which raised another $2 million. But the SEC determined that pre-selling accessories to a product that doesn't exist was fraudulent and illegal, and they ordered production of the cars stopped and the factory shut down while they investigated. Warrants were executed on the factory, and all the paperwork in the office was seized. Even if they hadn't been ordered to stop, the Tucker Corporation could hardly do business with all of their papers, plans, orders, and specs missing. Preston Tucker responded with, an open letter to the automobile industry in the interests of the American motorist by Preston Tucker, President, Tucker Corporation, which was published in the newspapers across the country. It read, in part, We are going to justify the support these motorists so generously have given us. We are going to give them the car they want at a price they can afford. I want to register the fact that we have just begun to fight. We have been patient so far, but our patience is wearing thin. We can give names, dates, and places to prove our charges of unfair competition, and if necessary, we will do it. When the day comes that anyone can bend our country's laws and lawmakers to serve selfish, competitive ends, that day democratic government dies. And we're just optimistic enough to believe that once the facts are on the table, American public opinion will walk in with a big stick. The newspapers that had helped build up hype for the Tucker Torpedo also provided the means needed to take the company down. Syndicated columnist and radio show host Drew Pearson announced on his show that Preston Tucker was a fraud and the SEC had proved it. The whole operation was a scam and had been since the beginning. Tucker had ripped off all the investors, stockholders, and pre-purchasers. These things weren't true, at least not in the way and to the degree Pearson was claiming. But, as they say, a lie gets around the world while the truth is still tying its shoes. Papers across the nation ran the column. Tucker's stock tanked, and the public that a year ago had paid for the privilege to look at the tin goose now turned on Preston Tucker. In January 1949, the plant was closed and the Tucker Corporation was bankrupt. That October, the SEC put Preston Tucker and his board of directors on trial for fraud. The following January, a grand jury found the defendants not guilty. But 
it was too late. The Tucker Corporation had been liquidated, the WAA confiscated the factory for failure to make the lease payments, and all of their assets, including the 51 cars they'd actually produced, were sold for 18 cents on the dollar. Today, what had been Tucker's 475-acre Chicago production plant now houses a Tootsie Roll factory and a shopping center. But 47 of those original 51 cars still exist in collections scattered around the world. You can sometimes see one at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. Even up on blocks, it's said to glow like a champagne pearl. The same cannot be said for the reputation of Preston Tucker. Though Tucker had been acquitted, the public didn't seem to notice. The stink of the accusation and trial clung to Tucker for the rest of his life. You've got a feel for him for that. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. One person who might well have sympathized and could definitely empathize, not to put words in his mouth was John Z. DeLorean, who suffered largely the same fate. Show of hands if you're of an age that the first time you can remember laying eyes on a DeLorean was in the 1985 movie Back to the Future. Back to the Future, incidentally, came up repeatedly during the most recent episode of Spot the Lie, the Patreon-exclusive podcast uploaded yesterday. Development for the iconic, paint-free, gull-wing DeLorean began a decade before that with the first production car, and all of its development issues, rolling out in 1980. With the exception of five gold-plated cars, every DeLorean left the factory naked as a jaybird in all their raw stainless steel glory. The DeLorean wasn't the first car with gull wings, that was the 1952 Mercedes-Benz 300 SL race car and its 1954 road-legal sister. But the DeLorean fixed it in the public zeitgeist. Stylistically, the DeLorean was a tour de force. Mechanically, 
it fell as flat as its body panels. The top speed you could squeeze out of the 130 horsepower engine was about 109 miles per hour. My Geo Metro went to 115. Before we get any further into that minutia, let's meet the car's namesake, John Zachary DeLorean. DeLorean had successfully run Pontiac and Chevrolet for General Motors, before tossing his papers up in the air and leaving to start his own company. The DeLorean Corporation began in consulting, but the acquisition of the Composite Technology Corporation gave DeLorean access to a patented process for forming plastic foam panels. The DeLorean car shimmered into existence as a cooperative effort between DeLorean Corporation and the Allstate Insurance Agency, which provided half a million dollars towards the design of a so-called safety car. Allstate later backed out, but DeLorean already had the money. Design work was contracted to Ital Design in Turin, Italy, with instructions that the car must have gull-wing doors, must have a deformable plastic nose and tail cap, room for six-foot-plus occupants, and, of course, the stainless steel body. The prototype, dubbed the DMC-12, debuted at the 1977 National Automobile Dealers Association meeting, and 158 dealers paid $25,000 each for the right to sell them, with another 185 signing on soon after. When it came time to fire up the factory and make these bad boys, DeLorean, continuing with the international approach, looked to Northern Ireland. Picture the cheating boyfriend meme, where DeLorean is the guy, Natch, the girlfriend is Detroit, and the other girl is Belfast. A mixture of grants, loans, and direct equity investment totaling more than $100 million offered by the Northern Ireland Development Agency and the Department of Commerce enticed DeLorean to choose the troubled with a capital T city. The Irish Republican Army was fighting, or terrorizing, depending on who you ask, for home rule and freedom from Britain. And right in the middle of that sat a luxury car company with financial backing from the British government. Rolling in dough, DeLorean contracted Lotus to develop the DMC-12 sports car in 1978. Bonus fact, the cheapest Lotus you can buy new is just under $100,000. In 1981, the first cars rolled off the assembly lines and were sent stateside. Production costs had gotten way out of hand, driving the price of the car to more than twice what DeLorean had told dealers it would be. Each one cost $25,000, at a time when you could get a bog-standard four-door for $10,000. Hell, you could get a souped-up Corvette and still have $7,000 left over. Reviews were positive. The timing was not. A recession hit the U.S., leaving a large inventory of unsold cars. DeLorean's response? Build more cars! This, unsurprisingly, wasn't good for the bookkeepers, and DeLorean sought financial assistance from the British government. The new Thatcher-led administration was less keen to make it rain on John DeLorean. Layoffs ensued at both the Belfast factory and among DeLorean's U.S. staff, which prompted the British government to look into their accounting. Los Contadores were none too pleased with what they found, and put DeLorean Motor Company into receivership. 
One year after the first DMC-12 rolled off the line, the company filed for bankruptcy. And then the cocaine happened. For many years, most of my knowledge of the John DeLorean cocaine bust came from the movie The People vs. Larry Flint. That's a reliable historical documentary, right? In his tell-all 1985 book, cleverly titled DeLorean, he describes over two months of chasing what he thought was a legitimate investment in his auto company before, abruptly, drugs were brought up as a possible source of money. The Federal Bureau of Investigation claimed DeLorean was trying to save his company with a scheme to sell 100 kilos, or 220 pounds, of cocaine with an estimated street value of $24 million. The government was tipped off by DeLorean's former neighbor, James Hoffman, an FBI informant hoping to get a reduced sentence for his own federal drug charges. He knew DeLorean was in major financial trouble and needed money fast. Hoffman told the Fibbers that DeLorean had approached him to ask about setting up a cocaine deal. In truth, it was Hoffman that had called DeLorean with the idea. Hoffman called DeLorean a lot, pestering him and pestering him about it. In October 1982, DeLorean was charged by the U.S. government with trafficking cocaine following a videotape sting operation in which he was recorded by undercover federal agents agreeing to bankroll a cocaine smuggling operation, sitting in front of 60 pounds or $6.5 million worth of cocaine in an LAX hotel. DeLorean's lawyers successfully argued that the FBI and the DEA illegally trapped DeLorean, who had no criminal record, when they allowed Hoffman, a career criminal, to randomly solicit DeLorean into a criminal conspiracy. They called just one witness, Carol Winkler, DeLorean's administrative assistant, whose call log showed that Hoffman made the very first call. DeLorean was found not guilty in August of 1984, but by then, DMC had already collapsed into bankruptcy, and DeLorean's reputation as a businessman was irrevocably tarnished. When asked after his acquittal if he planned to resume his career in the auto industry, DeLorean quipped bitterly, Would you buy a used car from me? Then the IRS and its British equivalent came knocking. These inquiries eventually led to John DeLorean's indictment in 1985 on 15 federal charges of fraud, racketeering, wire fraud, and more. He was found not guilty then, too, even though it wasn't, and still isn't, entirely clear where $17 million of investor money went. Interestingly, Back to the Future opened in July of 85, smack between DeLorean's criminal trials. DeLorean's name was legally as clean as the DMC's body panels, but his name and reputation, and the reputation of his car, had been crushed into a cube by the compactor of public opinion and fickle news coverage. Picture it. America, 1973. Gas is starting to get really expensive and would soon be in short supply. All over America, people were looking at their massive, thirsty V8 engines and starting to wonder if lumbering around town in a Delta 88 was really worth having to sell a kidney for. People were getting desperate for new, cheaper, smaller options. 
Enter the Dale. The Dale looked like nothing that was on the road at the time. Futuristic is the word people used. You remember the movie Flight of the Navigator? Okay, picture the spaceship in mid-transition between regular and fast mode. That's about the shape of the Dale in profile. The yellow prototype car had three wheels, two up front and one in the rear, which not only made it space-agey because it looked like it had no rear wheels, but foregoing 25% of the wheels allegedly cut 25% of the total weight of the vehicle, not to mention creating a substantial cost savings. Incidentally, having the solo wheel in the back rather than at the front kept the center of gravity over the triangle formed by the wheels, so the Dale wouldn't flip over like a startled possum, a bugbear for cars like the British Reliant Robin. The car was light, made not of steel, but of rocket structural resin. Whatever that is. The car contained no wires, the brochure bragged, with all the electronics running off a single printed circuit board. The makers of the Dale, the 20th Century Motor Company, a reference to a fictitious company in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, claimed that the Dale's BMW motorcycle engine could get upwards of 70 miles per gallon and cost $2,000. Even in 1974 dollars, that was cheap. The Volkswagen Beetle, beloved for its low price point, was $2,400. The car was nothing compared to the founder of the company, though. 37-year-old Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael, mother of five, widow of a former NASA structural engineer, holder of degrees in mechanical engineering and marketing, had a big personality and a frame to match, standing six feet tall. And until shortly before forming 20th Century Motor Company, Carmichael had been Jerry Dean Michael, deadbeat father and career criminal who was wanted on fraud, theft, and counterfeiting charges when they disappeared. Now, a person changing their gender presentation is not unusual today, but in 1974? Also, changing your name from Michael to Carmichael and launching a car company? Bit on the nose, don't you think? It's like every story where the mysterious stranger is named Alucard and nobody realizes that's Dracula spelled backwards. As the first female CEO of a car company, Carmichael had the makings of an icon of the sexual revolution. She was written up in Newsweek and People magazine. The L.A. media was all over her. Johnny Carson even mentioned the Dale and its creator on The Tonight Show. Carmichael talked a very good game and had amassed $30 million for the company, 10% of which had been promised to the car's designer, Dale Clift. And they produced a few prototypes, which were shown at the 1975 L.A. Auto Show. At the show, they claimed they would be able to ramp up to full-volume production by June, which was a very bold claim, considering there were still things like crash testing and EPA approval to contend with. At one event, Carmichael claimed to have driven their only running prototype, the other two were basically shells, straight into a wall at 30 miles per hour, emerging without injury, okay, and with no damage to the car. You know what? No. No. I am calling shenanigans, Miss Carmichael. That's a bridge too far. No, you didn't drive your company's only working prototype into a wall, and no, the 
sledgehammer-proof rocket structural resin did not save the car from any and all damage. That's one of those claims that, in hindsight, should be cheek-scorchingly embarrassing for anyone who believed it at the time. During the time when one would imagine they'd be developing prototypes and testing the cars, the company was busy doing, you know, other things, like selling stock without a permit, and selling dealerships and the as-yet hypothetical car to dealers without a manufacturer's license. Things got even more exciting in the company in late January of 75, when salesman and former public relations rep William Miller was found dead in his office with four gunshots to the head. The prime suspect was fellow employee Jack Oliver, who, it was soon discovered, had served time with Miller in San Quentin Prison. Geraldine, can we talk about your hiring practices? Local press began investigating Carmichael, the company, and the car, and found a whole lot of hinky going on. Seeing the excrement headed inexorably towards the fan, Carmichael left L.A. and went to Dallas, Texas, where she reestablished the company, cleverly renaming the Dale the Revet to throw anyone off her trail. Now, your average person on the cusp of being exposed as a multi-million dollar fraud would lay low, stay off the radar, change jobs. Nope, not Carmichael. She promoted the Revet with as much enthusiasm as she did the Dale, even managing to have it be a showcase showdown prize on The Price is Right. Luckily, the contestant had been unable to guess the car's price, saving everyone from the embarrassment of winning a car that couldn't actually move under its own power. An eagle-eyed California regulator who happened to be watching daytime TV recognized the yellow, three-wheeled car, whose name host Bob Barker and announcer Johnny Olson said repeatedly, in plain sight on national television. A few days later, Carmichael was arrested outside of Dallas. While appealing the case, a $50,000 bail was posted by someone described as a mysterious perfume merchant. This turned out to be a TV producer who wanted the exclusive rights to the story for an expose he was planning. Carmichael slipped away again. It would take a decade and another TV show to move the story forward. When viewers of Unsolved Mysteries found her running a flower stand under the name Katherine Johnson in, not a word of a lie, Dale, Texas. Did she go looking for a town named Dale, one wonders, or did the universe just rip a fatty and say, you know what'll be really funny? She served 10 years in federal prison on the earlier charges, and upon her release, it was California's turn. Carmichael spent another 32 months in jail on charges related to the Dale fraud. And all that time behind bars apparently cured Carmichael of her desire for the limelight. She worked as a florist and kept her nose clean until her death from cancer in 2004. And what of Dale Clift, who designed the car and named it after himself, thinking he had a $3 million payday on the way? Carmichael only paid him $1,000 in cash and a $2,000 check, which bounced. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. My clever brainiacs probably worked out pretty quickly what car I was talking about at the top of the show, the infamous Ford Edsel, which failed for many reasons. While the company did extensive research in consumer trends, 
they seem to have completely ignored their findings. People hated the Edsel's vertical grille. No one really liked the name Edsel, and the Ford family didn't like them using it, but it was a lot less stupid than the other names they were considering. It was supposed to be an affordable luxury car, but it had a luxury luxury price, and they had a recession on. Add to that, the Edson was reliably unreliable. Their production shoehorned into an assembly line that was supposed to be making other cars. It also didn't fit in a lot of people's garage, since it was 10 inches longer than a standard F-150 pickup. But we all know the name Ford Edsel, so at least there's that. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.